With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. You're listening to the Tennis.com podcast, and here's your host, Ed McGrogan. Welcome back, everyone, to the Tennis.com podcast. A uh, long time, but we're back here. I'm Ed McGrogan with Steve Tigner. Wanted to uh, catch up on most of the happenings that have been uh, taking place as the fall season has really gotten underway here. Um, we're going to get to Davis Cup, which the final has been settled, and it's certainly a final most people, I think, wanted to see. Um also going to get into the WTA, I think, post-Lina, post-Grand Slam season with a look ahead toward 2015. But I wanted to start, of course, with um, the latest return of Rafael Nadal. And we were just going over this, Steve. And, and you know, I when I think about Rafa's history of injuries in his past, it's also been a history of incredible comebacks that have not just been successful but really wildly successful and and I sort of wonder if I'm if we should even think otherwise at, at this point it just you know Rafa wins every year Rafa seems to back up his place as the king of clay with doing his thing in Roland Garros and every time he's been out he's come back and really you know taken the tour once again in his stranglehold so what do you I guess what do you see is there anything perhaps different that you might think happens this time around or or do you see things turning up well for Rafa once again well I could you know ju- like you said judging by the history you have to think he's going to be as good as he's you know as good as he's ever been um, he's still just 28 he um, in 2009 he missed Wimbledon but then you know with knee problems and there was speculation that he you know that could be a career-ending injury in 2010 he was number one in 2012 he missed a lot of the year with knee problems again. And then 2013, he was number one. I don't know if he's going to be number one again this time. It's a, it's a different injury. He was out for a little less time. Um, it does seem like with his style of play, he can use a break. You know, he, he's never been sort of a, like a Federer type of player who will dominate for an entire year or even for three years at once. He, he will dominate for a period and then he'll either he'll be injured or he'll have a down time. And then you know, then he comes back. So this would seem to work perfectly for him leading into next year. He plays, he'll play Beijing and Shanghai, probably Paris and, Lo- and London. And, you know, which this might be the the best chance he has to do well in this, this time of the year. Usually he comes into this time of the year a little worn down and hasn't really done that well and has never won the World Tour Finals. So, you know, you'd have to think he has a, you know, there might be some hiccups along the way, but I would think, by then he'll be he'll be playing well. I, I think it was it's perhaps encouraging that because of like you say his, his fall season history indoor hard courts probably the least conducive to his game that that he would choose to come back really at all at this point in the year because I think you could definitely 
make a case for Rafa just writing off this season as, you know, looking ahead really toward 2015. And I think uh, the fact that, you know, his camp, who I think by now, you know, knows exactly, you know, kind of his uh, his injury history and what he's susceptible to, the, the fact that they want to make a full go of this for the rest of, of the year, I think is a little bit encouraging for, you know, for Rafa's prospects and maybe how they see him coming back. And, and you know, we'll see how he does in these events, but it was, like you said, pretty interesting to, to see that he comes back and he beats Gasquet four in love in a match when he hasn't played in, uh, three months. Yeah, that's a perfect opponent for him. He's tw- he was 12-0 and 0 against Gasquet, so it won't always go like that. Um, but he didn't seem to have any, he didn't seem any slower. He seemed pretty much the same, Rafa did. And I'll be interested to see if he plays Djokovic in either of these, either of these um, Asian events, what that, what happens there, because their rivalry has typically gone in streaks where one person will dominate for a short time than the other person will. Djokovic is obviously he's number one now. He's been the he's been the guy who's been winning those matches. Um, so we'll see whether this could lead to another turn in that rivalry. Yeah, and, and that's I mean that's a rivalry that I think a good way that you put it was um, you know looking ahead at, at this week's event in Beijing was it's about the big two really, and we that's we've had the the big three, the big four, but. I think your point, obviously, is that really when it comes down to it and when it comes down to when these guys are healthy, I mean, this is this is clearly the rivalry in the game that um, is of the moment, and we really can't predict because it's gone in so many and veered in so many directions. And, um, and, right, and usually, as you say, one person tends to have the upper hand in this, and you can clearly tell who it is. Um, and I, I guess we'll we'll actually it'll be just curious to see what Djokovic really ends up doing this fall as well with um, you know a lot of heart a lot of things off court he'll be dealing with and um, and really kind of a disappointing end to the U.S. Open for him and and a summer post Wimbledon in general where it just didn't look like the same guy. Yeah, as good as Rafa could be, I think Djokovic could also he could be dominant in this time of year last year. That's what happened. You know that's what happened in 2013. He had a, he lost to Rafa in the U.S. Open and then he in the U.S. Open final and then he didn't lose another match. He's coming off a kind of a down period that ended at the U.S. Open. He loves this time of year. He's 20 20 and 0 at in Beijing. Um, so we'll see that what those two guys end up doing the rest of this fall will be interesting. Before we move off to the WT, actually, I wanted to just bring up. I mean, we saw Marin Cilic win the U.S. Open and look great doing it and making a lot of other great players, you know, really look uh, kind of humbled against him at, at his absolute peak there. And clearly that was the best we've seen of him. I mean, we asked this question, I think, back in January after Stan wins the Australian Open. Stan's a few years older than Chilich, of course. I think that there's a difference we can address there. But, you know, what do you see from, from Chilich, I think, going forward? I mean, Maybe maybe not even this fall, but really kind of the long term view of him. I mean, are we are we pen, are we thinking that Chilich has you know as good of a shot as anybody else to kind of bag a second slam? You know, at some point. Well, if you look at his record, he and Stan had really similar records um, coming into their Grand Slam wins. They were completely unexpected. Neither had won a Masters tournament. Neither had been to the final of a of a Grand Slam. Neither had even won a 500 level event so it was 
it was almost as if once they got to the end of the slam, they had no history of losing to the top guys there. I, I don't know if that had a, an effect where they were sort of completely free, that this was completely unexpected to them. Um, but s since that win, Stan has been good. He's been solid, but he's gone, he hasn't become, you know, he hasn't turned into Djokovic. He hasn't turned into Nadal or Federer. He's been, he's made the quarters at some slams. He has, he's won, he's only, he's won one tournament. Um, he's taken some, some bad losses. You know, he hasn't gone on to, to, to be the next dominant player. Chilich is a little younger. I think Chilich, because if he can keep serving the way he's been serving, he'll be a force all the time. But judge, you know, just judging by the way Vavrinka sort of came from where he came from and where he is now, I could see Chilich. I don't, I don't, I don't see him winning another Slam necessarily in 2015. But a guy who's going to be in the quarters and is going to challenge. Right. Yeah. It's. Uh you know, as you say, the way these two sort of came from nowhere to win a slam, and I guess you think about the, you know, how dominant everybody else, is, the the main players are in the game. It's almost not even a surprise in a way that there's not that stepping stone from winning a small event to winning a Masters. We always sort of wondering that, like you have to, you don't necessarily have to take these steps when I think things break the way they did, certainly at the U.S. Open like that for Chilich. So. Um, we look ahead as well to the WTA and kind of where things really stand. I think, I think you know, you have Serena winning the U.S. Open. You have Lena retiring now. It's it's kind of a uh, a point to to really look ahead to where things will stand. Um, Serena just turned 33, also as well, um, just last week, um, and we saw this year we had a year of really strong gains made by. Kvitova winning her second slam, Bouchard and Halep really putting themselves as top five caliber players um, and posting you know big results at slams. You have some resurgences by you know I think stars that we thought years ago had had really high potential. Ivanovic, Wozniacki, you know coming back this year. Sharapova of course still in the mix, but a terrific record against Serena. I mean. You know, of those players, I mean, where do do you see a, a really a true challenger to Serena, or is it really no matter how no matter how much we maybe talk it up, it, could it still be business as usual, like kind of Serena and really what you know the, whoever is playing as well that week? Yeah, I think I would bet on business as usual. Two years ago, we thought we were looked at Victoria Azarenka as Serena's next challenger. She had won the Australian Open. She definitely challenged Serena in the finals of the U.S. Open, but then she's been injured. She was injured a lot this year, and she seems generally injury-prone. Uh, last year, we looked at Lee Na. She was the she was going to be the next challenger to Serena. She finished number two. She gave her a good match in the year-end finals, and then she won the Australian Open this year, and now she's out of the off the tour completely. So um, I think the next person that would come to mind to me would be Petra Kvitova. She won Wimbledon. Um, this year, she is having a good fall so far. She's the type of player who can hit with Serena. She's not going to be blown off the it's court. She's always played her. well indoors, too, where these events are going to be. But then when you look back a couple years ago, she almost finished number one in 2011, had a great fall, and then really didn't do much after that. I don't know if it was the pressure or she's just not that consistent. So I would say Kvitova seems like the person to to really look at as a challenger to Serena, but her history doesn't really tell you that she can sustain 
she can sustain that. When you look at somebody like Halep, she's still a question mark. She's had this great year, but it's it's just one year. The you know the the sample size isn't that that big for her. We'll see whether she you know and she has she's always going to be struggling a little bit because she you know she's just not big enough to to overpower somebody like Serena or some of the other top players. Yeah. Um, it'll always be a, a battle for her. And, w- and where do you put? Where do you sort of see? You know, Bouchard. Speaking of with, with help as someone who, I think those two will pro- will probably be compared going forward as, as kind of making these leaps here. Um, but two very different players, and I, I know you're working on a lot um, for Bouchard. You know, what, how do you, I think, see her really developing? And because there, you know, she is still so young and. With a with this year's worth of experience, I think there's a lot to be said for that. Um, you know, kind of getting getting some of these you know crucible type matches really under your belt, win or lose. And you know, maybe you know she got she clear. I think clearly knows where the ceiling is for her, and, and it's you know it's getting over that last that last hump. But how do you see her kind of playing out in the, in the near future? Yeah, sure. You know, her good. The good parts about her, she's smart. She's, um, we, as we've heard, she has good composure. She is definitely committed and and um, you know dedicated to to getting better. She's confident in herself. But I guess the one problem is if she has an off day, unlike somebody like Serena or Kvitova, she can't really hit herself out of out of trouble. And that's been true for a player like Redwanska, also a smart player, a little smaller. But we haven't seen her go on to win a Grand Slam. Bouchard attacks more and has has more of an opportunity, you know, t- to do that. But it seems like the really big hitters are the ones who win Grand Slams. The Serena's, Kvitova, as a as a ranker to a certain degree. So I think we'll see about Bouchard. I think she can win a Grand Slam because I think she'll be consistent and she'll always put herself in contention. I don't see her having a lot of huge ups and downs. And then she'll maybe she'll just need a break at the end of a of a tournament. Yeah, I think the interesting thing actually about all this is that. I feel like we. I feel like the the retirement card has somehow has occasionally been been bandied about for someone like Federer, especially when he had a really lull year in um, 2013. But I think we 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 may have wondered where Serena was going to go a few years ago, and you know how kind of her motivation for everything. And since those points, I think it's only been more apparent that Serena's possibly even more motivated than ever to keep playing and we I haven't heard anything about the sword they're both you know both 33 but I think the interesting thing about all this is that we really don't have really any idea when Serena will want to stop and there's certainly been little evidence of her um, abilities waning and um, and I think that's the really the the great unknown about all this is as much as we think about the unknowns of who will, catch up to who will who will compete with Serena. I think she remains the biggest unknown all of this, and that's possibly why it's kind of really hard to wrap her heads around. Yeah, I think Federer is, you know, if Federer had remained number one all of these years and hadn't had any, you know, and had, hadn't been sort of, had the type of competition that he's had from Nadal and Djokovic, maybe we wouldn't, maybe we would all be, we wouldn't really talk that much about Federer's retirement. We would wonder when he could, he would ever lose. We wonder if he could go to if he was 36 or 37, but that's the way it's been with Serena. She hasn't. She's always kept herself above any serious competition, 
She's been number one the last three years. She's any time that she's been challenged or had some bad losses, she's come back and shown that she's still the best. There really is really nobody else that you would say if they're playing equally or if they're playing anywhere near their best is going to is going to beat Serena. You probably you still you wouldn't say that about Federer these days anymore. So yeah, you could. I mean, who's going to come along and beat Serena? It's, imp- it's just maybe sh- at some point she'll have an injury or she will get tired of it. But as of now, there's just really nobody that you can, you know, there's no, there's no way to even say that she's going to be finished when she's 35. Right. We mentioned Federer. Let's, let's end on Federer's, uh, you know, I have to say for, for some, you know, Federer does not want a grand slam title this year, but this could still actually end up being one of his most, I think, satisfying years. And he really is going to have, of course, the chance to get, um, you know, the, the last card played here with the Davis Cup final, um, something that he's put a lot into this year. And um, he's, you know, him and Stan and Switzerland draw an incredibly tough challenge to, to finish um, what they started here. They'll play France in um, in northern France in Lille in a, um, a huge 27,000-seat arena. Um, Fran- it's going to be in... Um, it's going to be on clay, and France will, of course, have its usual uh, very talented roster to choose from upon this uh, this tie that comes right after the World Tour Finals. Um, we've seen, I guess we've seen Switzerland really come from, we we're wondering if Roger was going to do this at all, to kind of digging themselves out of a really unexpected hole against Kazakhstan to cruising here into the final. France, you know, now they're I think living up to so much of the hype that they, that you that has always been bandied about with their players there. Um, I guess first, how do you see this perhaps playing out? This is very early to talk about it, but I think the bigger question is, I mean, does Roger does Roger really really need this win for any particular reason, or just looking at how his year and really how his career is playing out here? Yeah, I think he, you know, he's been accused even by his own, even by Vavrinka of putting himself above wanting to play for his country. I think that's something he wants to, he wants to um, sort of dispel and put an end to. And that is what Federer has done over the years. He's, he prioritized his own um, accomplishments, his own tour career over playing Davis Cup. He always said he would keep, keep, Switzerland in the world group, but he never, but he rarely played the opening um, rounds because it was, you know, he felt it was too much. I think this is something that he can put that aside. I think he wants to win the Davis Cup. Early in his career, he was definitely dedicated to the Davis Cup. He's always, whenever he does well in it, he, you know, it's almost as if he's won a Grand Slam. He definitely puts a lot of stock in it, loves to play for his country, uh, at least in the Olympics. So I think it is important for him. All the, virtually all of the great players in on the men's side have a Davis Cup title, uh, and I think that would be a that would be a big career capper for Federer. It doesn't it doesn't take any away from him individually if he doesn't, but you know it would be it's definitely something extra for him, and you know it probably comes as a surprise he. I think this was they saw this as the perfect opportunity when Djokovic didn't play 
for Serbia in the opening round, it was the perfect time for Federer to announce that he was going to play. And they've had a great draw, and they're going to be tough in the final. And and as for the final, I really haven't. It's going to be really hard. To, I think that's a complete toss-up. I'm not even sure who would play for France, but Vavrinka and Federer versus say Sanga and Monfils on clay in France. Um, I think that's, yeah, it, I think that's just a, that's an excellent tie and I have no idea who would win. Yeah, it, it's obviously incredibly early to even talk about it. I guess the one thing for France I think about it is how that I think you can put in their favor not only the home court and the home fans, but you think about Davis Cup the last few years and you know if you if you take away the Spain's victory in you know 2011, a lot of the Davis Cups, Serbia, Czech Republic have been won by you know, with teams featuring players that really have not been, hadn't been able to really grasp it on the main tour themselves, but and but have seen have used Davis Cup as really a, a platform for their best tennis. Really, you know, Davis Cup. This happened before Djokovic's win there. That happened before really his great run to becoming, I think, the you know the the player that he is today. And you saw that. The last couple of years with the Czechs, with a two-man team, which is essentially, you know, what Switzerland is carrying out. But you you seem to wonder if maybe, you know, in particular, a player like Monfils, like this is almost perfectly suited for a player, someone like him who just loves to play to the crowd, and he's not going to get a more partisan crowd and a more raucous atmosphere than he's going to see in a in a you know late November there. So. I think there is a lot to be said for France and what they can offer and, uh, you know, what they can throw at what, what is obviously a great team in Stan and Roger. Yeah, I think you look at Sanga has beaten Federer at the French Open. Monfils almost beat him at um, the U.S. Open this year. They Both of those guys have done well at Roland Garros. They have never won. And at times they've it seems like they've succumbed to the pressure, but they've also been inspired by the, the home crowd, and that would, that would be – you know, that would be even more true, I think, uh, in this match. Yeah. Well, good. Steve and I will be uh, back uh, next week as well for more podcasting. We're going to keep things going through the fall here and uh, touch on all the big tennis topics of the week. So until then, for Steve Tigner, I'm Ed McGrogan here at the Tennis.com podcast. You've been enjoying the Tennis.com podcast. For all the latest news and events, head over to Tennis.com. 